loving bad behavior, join our Patreon page. You'll get access to bonus episodes, juicy behind the scenes content, live Q&As and much more. We'll see you there. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad behavior. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. So Nicola, how have you been bad this week? Okay, so in my office at the moment, there is currently a war raging about the office temperatures. (laughs) That was anticlimactic. (laughs) But it is a constant thing that people talk about and they always sneak up and change the thermostat without telling anyone else. It's a bit of a low-key crime. You don't want to get caught doing it. And so it's either really hot in our office or really cold because everyone kind of likes it at a different temperature. I read this really cool article about how women work better at hotter temperatures and how a lot of offices are not the most productive places for women because of the cold temperatures that men enjoy. This kind of blew my mind. This is one of many little data subsets that means a lot to women. Data is not being read with a gender lens and that's really detrimental. You know, if women work better at hotter temperatures, then by God, let's make the whole world hotter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's at least consider that there's a middle ground. And also, it's not something I necessarily would even think of when I think of what data do we have, what do we need in an office space? Actually, it brings to mind last year, Amazon found that one of their recruiting AIs was discriminating against women. From what I understand, this program was created so that be able to go through resumes and then give them like top five candidates. These are the ones you want to see. They had it, I think, for about a year or so from 2014 to 2015. This is from memory. Basically, they realized that it was discriminating against women because the program would compare the successful resumes to the resumes they'd received in the last 10 years. Seems like an okay idea. However, the last 10 years in a tech space, male-dominated industry, AI, it went through it and taught itself that women's resumes weren't as good and would discriminate against resumes that had the word women in it, such as like I was in the women's group at uni or something. It would actually discriminate against those resumes because the ones that had won in the last 10 years didn't have that. (laughs) Won, won the, well, it is a war. We've talked about the war of temperature. It's a war to get a job. That is something that until it happened, they never would have thought of. But the fact that it's a male-dominated industry and then they're putting in data sets and trying to make an AI make their decisions without having a gendered lens, you just can't make that decision. You can't solve that inequality. A lot of the internets is what the word I'm drawn to but that's not correct I love that you brought this up like the technophobe of us I am just aware that technology is going to ruin us it's super interesting and you don't think about how a lot of the data that you read is gendered It's definitely something to consider because more and more of our lives are being centered around data and apps and using the internet. So much of our world is becoming more and more automated. AIs are becoming more and more common. I mean, it's just so normal. Yeah, like I press the home button on my phone and I have a woman who will do anything I want. She's my little female doormat. It's really scary. 
because if you think about the fact we're going more and more towards this, which is not something I want to stop because it's extremely convenient for me. But if we don't put gender at the center of this discussion and this transition, we're going to just increase that divide just inevitably because things like office temperature is not something that you think about day to day, but becomes a bigger issue. You don't think about the fact that having a tech company, which is male dominated, will lead your AI to not hire women because it seems so crazy, but it happens. We can't use our common sense logic on technology because these inequalities are already there exactly and they exist even further for you know trans women women of color and so if we're not centering women at all then complete communities are marginalized from using stuff that is now ingrained in everyday society the more i think about it the bigger this is and i've never it runs deep I have never thought of this before. Like all of this becomes a problem we need to solve without tech companies that are actually considering gender and actually using that in order to create how they collect data. We will never stop divides of inequality. I'm getting really passionate about it and I'm confused. I'm passionate and confused. The thing that we need to point out is we have no background in this whatsoever. I run away from data when I see it. No, I I, I mean that's a bit extreme. I don't run away. I don't run away. I just I wish I had the tools to interpret it better. And so that's why we are gonna speak to someone about this. Today we'll be talking to Zoe, the CEO and founder of She's a Crowd. Zoe is a researcher in gender and crowdsourcing technology at Monash University and she's also one of the 2018 Women's Weekly Women of the Future for innovation and technology. Her company has been listed on the Smart Company Smart 30 list for two years running. So She's a Crowd is a feminist tech startup and we use storytelling data to make cities safe for women and address gender-based violence. I have a, like a professional avenue into it and a personal avenue into it. When we got given an assignment at school, I was like the first thing I thought was like, how can I make sure that I am cheeky, but then also get really good marks at the same time? And I feel like She's a Crowd is like that. And I just feel like that's always been my kind of approach to stuff is just like, how can I like ace this, but also be very like subversive while I do it? Basically, for my personal side of things, started my first social enterprise when I was 21 in Cambodia, community development and arts. While I was over there, I guess I felt like I was achieving a lot and, you know, it, it takes a lot to kind of go and do that, that sort of thing. But I was really like putting myself out there and I got into this relationship and it turned out to be horribly controlling and abusive. When you have that experience for the first time, it's obviously like extremely shocking because you're in a state of denial about it for a certain amount of time. Well, I was because I didn't feel like that would be the kind of thing that would happen to like someone like me. It made my like feminism really like land in a particular place. Rather than this like abstract concept of like, oh yeah, no, like that sounds like something that I definitely believe in. It was like, oh, like this is like what has happened to me personally is a political issue. Being able to, 
intellectualize like what had happened and understand it on like a more structural level was what like feminism gave me and I feel like that saved me in a lot of ways and so I knew that I had a real you know drive to be entrepreneurial but I knew that I had to do that in the area of gender equality from like that point onwards so it was quite simple for me in that way where I was just able to just decide that that was what I was going to focus on because that's kind of how I got into gender equality and I started working in international development for like larger NGOs like you know you do that's where like the professional kind of side of things comes in I was doing a lot of projects for my personal kind of arts practice which were around female collective storytelling and gender-based violence kind of exploring the public-private divide in like gender-based violence specifically around like intimate partner violence versus like the way the media portrays sexual assault on the street and we've seen that a lot lately the monster myth the media tends to really sensationalize those stories that are you know awful and they're about women you know often in dark places at night that are attacked by people they don't know I would see that in the media but then in my experience I was talking with increasingly more and more women who'd experienced this type of violence overtly and subvertly but behind closed doors and with people that they knew and trusted and had been intimate with and because I had come out as an ambassador for the International Day of the Girl and shared my personal story I was experiencing this thing where more and more people were coming to me with their stories and like it was happening all the time and it was really interesting because people would say like oh but that that doesn't actually happen very often does it and I would be like feel like I was living in a parallel universe because I was hearing it all the time from every like from it just felt like just everyone would tell me their story and like I was the person where like if you know their friend got raped they would be like Zoe what should we do and it was just like this constant thing so I was like really fascinated by the idea of sharing stories and I came across the consciousness raising practices of like the 60s and the feminist liberation movement and found that really fascinating as a process for turning women into people who believed that they had a political fight in them bringing the personal into the political and all of that and that coincided with me working on a project called free to be which is a digital mapping tool that allowed women to map street harassment all across the city and I pioneered that project for plan international and we piloted it in melbourne in 2016 and then we scaled it to five continents around the world that was really fascinating because a lot of people thought that women would not want to share their stories online because it was pre me too and it was a very different time before me too like i really had so many conversations when we were just trying to get free to be off the ground with people that said that won't work because women won't want to share their stories online and turns out they do that was really the inspiration behind she's a crowd was we're at a moment in time where women want to share their stories online half a million shared their stories on twitter alone in the first 24 hours of me too and yet most of that data wasn't actually used to inform how we address the problem into the future but when we look at the data we've got a big data gap because over 80 percent of sexual assault goes unreported and sexual harassment basically does not go reported at all because it's largely not really a crime so I wanted to look at how we could address the data gap that we see in gender-based violence in public and everywhere else. And I wanted to do that using something that women love to do, which is share our stories. That's like the crux of the product at the moment, because we have to design something that is useful data-wise for Mm. customers. And we have to design something that is 
trauma-informed and cathartic for users. If we don't think about ensuring that the story becomes useful data, then we can't say to someone you know sharing your story matters but if we're only treating people as data that's bringing up a lot of the issues that we see in like the criminal justice system where people end up feeling like you know they went through this whole process and reported and it was just re-traumatizing and so we're trying to be this middle ground it has involved a lot of testing and a lot of research and knowing our stuff and so I'm doing my PhD at the moment in this area specifically as well so I feel like I'm really getting to understand the process behind digital consciousness raising. We've built an MVP that quite simple, it's really just multiple choice, but it's just that it's done in a particular way. It's definitely not perfect, but it's starting to do that. So what that does is allows anyone anywhere in the world to share their story and doesn't feel clinical and doesn't feel like a black hole where you're sharing your story. It uses kind of an intuitive approach that's based on how women tend to share stories anyway in like a group setting. That was a lot of the feedback we got was from women who had experiences of sharing their story through like the university reporting portals and it was just awful and like, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but like it's just very unpleasant. And then you kind of like click send and you're like... where did it go who like will I ever hear back so we wanted to avoid all of that so it's just this very like intuitive storytelling platform that allows you to share your story and then also put in your own text as well so anything that you didn't get to share through the kind of selection process of categories you can then share afterwards I actually had a little go at the She's a Crowd story sharing feature. What struck me was how inclusive and feminist and accessible it was. And I've never really experienced a reporting process like this before. I think a lot of processes are really white-centered, they're really heteronormative, and they can be quite traumatizing to the victims because they don't make you feel safe in the story that you're telling. Whereas She's a Crowd kind of moves you through your experience in a way that's really soft and also places you at the centre. One example of that that I found was they have a question and it says, did you feel this was motivated by? And then they have six checks boxes and it says sexism, racism, ableism, body size, homophobia, transphobia. Now that to me is transformative. I don't think when talking about sexual assault when talking about how reporting happens the fact that that's a core set of the data that she's a crowd is collecting is revolutionary and it really struck me when I was going through it that every question is so considerate and that's what gender data is all about consideration I'm really um, moved by that as well because, you know, I've never had to use one of these, but I wouldn't imagine that that's something that would always come up because even though this is experiential data, you know, this is someone saying this was something that happened to me and we should be taking all those different points. That really strikes me as something really wonderful. It reminds me too of a conversation that I had with our editor, Namcheja. She was talking about how In Australia, a lot of the time on online forms and things like that, they ask for your race if you're willing to provide it and they will give you options such as Caucasian. But then they'll say, are you African-American? Cheji is a wonderful, beautiful person of color, but she's also just African. She's not American. But for some reason, that isn't an option always on the forms. They assume that if you are a black person, you are 
African-American, which I thought was really interesting because that's not something that as a white female cisgendered person, I was ever going to notice. It's not a checkbox I need to know about, but her saying that, I go, that's crazy. Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting point because it's almost like a lot of these processes, if you're from a marginalized group, you kind of have to compromise a part of yourself in order to report horrific things that have happened to you. And even just generally, the fact that most official forms still don't have boxes outside of male or female. Or other. That's the ultimate othering check a box that says other and type in what you are and see yourself lumped in with a whole other group of identity rather than the thing that you are. I think again with the your story kind of getting lost within that mess of reporting that's why having this conversation with Zoe is so important because our society has this standard that there's two genders and once you've established that as a norm it's really hard to then establish a data subset for people who don't identify within those things and it's really harmful I have not experienced this I've never had to look at a form and question my identity as part of that form I can move through it with ease because of my privilege It just makes you think, doesn't it, that how are we supposed to make room for minorities and, you know, subsets of culture and identity and gender if there's no data that they exist? But there can't be data that they exist until we accept that they exist so that we can collect data on them. It's kind of that strange Catch-22 moment. I remember when LGBTIQA+, started to become an option on things like that where they would start asking questions like that. I remember that being quite revolutionary when I was growing up. You know, do you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Do you identify as LGBTQI+. These kind of questions are starting to emerge but it's just kind of crazy to see it from the other side of the equation and start to think about what it means to put that in place and how important it is to think about that even though A lot of the time people use data to try and figure out what they're trying to ask. I'm starting to be more aware of a lot of things I think I would have known if I thought about it, but didn't know to think about. So luckily now I only work with women, non-binary and people of colour as my tech team. I've obviously had incredible developers who are also, you know, white men and you've got to really translate. They never had a problem, like, with anything that I was doing but it always feels like it's a really hard thing as it is to run a tech company let alone be like a female founder of a tech company let alone be a female founder of a feminist tech company acknowledging like my privilege as you know a white founder as well but I think that when you come into the tech industry into like a room of tech people it's 90 percent white men and so it's really really hard to have some of the conversations that you need to have around designing the product right and I think some of that's just confidence and I've kind of gotten better over time at just like saying this is how I want it the amount of times I've sat down with like a mentor who's like going to like give me half an hour of his time so that I can learn like business skills because I've been like given a lot of amazing opportunities but you'll sit down with them and then they'll be like oh my god gender equality is so important my wife is a woman and she has told me that it is bad out there and I'm going to tell my wife all about this and I need to tell you that I really think gender equality is a huge issue and I'm like yeah I'm literally 
dedicating my life to it like yeah. can you tell me something new because like that guy just got half an hour of your time and you're like business expertise and i'm here missing out on that you're literally mansplaining my thing to me like this is my thing you tell me your thing yeah. like i should be explaining this yeah. to you <laughs> like yeah. and it's happens every time and like i had a guy like at um female founders pitch night he was one of the judges and he'd been pulled in last minute as a judge basically i pitched and I won people's choice. And so I went up to the judges to have a discussion after and I was like, I'd love some feedback about what you thought about my pitch from like a business model perspective because I know that sometimes my business models, it's actually like a social impact model. So it's quite tricky to get people's heads around when I'm pitching. Like I'd love some feedback and this guy is like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, you know, I just don't think that your startup should exist because I just think that the government should be dealing with gender equality. And I was like, but every startup exists because the government isn't doing something about this issue. Like every startup is filling a gap. And I was like thinking like, obviously that's not really it. Like, and he, and then he went on to explain to me that he actually feels very safe walking around at night and that all we need is more police and more lighting. And I was like, oh, okay. So you're the problem. So I said to him, so what you just said is exactly why we do need to exist because people like you think that they understand the problem and we don't even have data to tell them that they're wrong yet because like that data doesn't exist and like you don't understand because you don't have lived experience of being in any other body than your own. So you're just walking around at night like thinking that you understand that CCTV and police are the issues, but I am actually a researcher in this area and we have found that CCTV and police can actually make people feel less safe at night, especially if they're women or people of colour, etc., etc. And he was, like, very taken aback and very, like, okay. He kind of took it back and was like, I'm sorry. But he also said the only reason why you won people of choice is because women voted for you. And I was like, newsflash, women are people. So that story about... Zoe pitching She's a Crowd is really interesting to me because I do not think that I have the capacity to always act as calm and as centered when I come up against men like the one that she spoke about. And as a default, I get really angry most of the time and my anger can sometimes manifest into angry crying, which is very, very difficult when you're in the middle of an argument about something that you're very passionate about, like gender equality. And I find myself coming up against this quite often. It's almost settled inside of me as this bitterness. We've had this discussion before, actually, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, even when you're just out in the world and you mention that you do identify as feminist, people take that really strangely sometimes. So I was at work once and I mentioned my podcast and that it was a feminist podcast and one of my workmates said, oh my goodness, really? So you hate men? <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not what feminism means. It means equality for all. But it's interesting to hear you say that because it's like, of course, we come up with this bitterness. And yet people take that, I think, quite understandable reaction to being more informed and being more aware of misogyny and in everyday conversation I think that's a, a natural reaction to have though something that we should be careful about it's really interesting when I talk to you about this because I think I do the opposite where people will say something and if I'm having a conversation and it's not going well and they're not really open to it I kind of go okay they're not open to this discussion we have been you know socialized and educated in different 
paradigms on this issue. I don't think I can change your mind. I'm going to leave it. But then, of course, when are we going to have that discussion? When am I going to be open to people with other perspectives if I just leave it? Whereas your reaction is, I need to have this discussion. And then, of course, you're going to get frustrated when they're not open to listening to you. So it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting to me. It's a double-edged sword. You're running away and I'm standing there weeping. So either way, we're not getting much done. And it's really interesting. And it's interesting to have this conversation, especially because I think that from talking to Zoe, she's definitely come up against a lot of men like this in her career. And she's pushed beyond that because of a deep belief in the product that she's created and I think that wonderful point of where you're able to really turn the personal into political and into impact and you know those experiences of you being at work and someone equating feminism to man hating it kind of it works in a way where it takes you out of your bubble which I think is always important because I am in such comfortable cozy little bubble the progressive views of my friends and family as I've said when I come up against views outside of that it really really hits me hard and I it kind of takes me a while to recover from that like I play those moments over in my head for days for weeks and I think about what I could have said to have them react better or you know to join my team on a certain issue and it's really not about that I think it's like I admire a part of how you react because I think that's it's choosing your battles too well I guess for me I mean if listeners don't know I am someone who considers themselves a climate activist I do have these conversations a lot about climate change and I think that there is a parallel here because when you're talking to someone who really at their core does not believe that climate is an issue that we should be talking about it is not something that or even refutes the science you know there is a point at which you have to go okay I can't reach you in this discussion and so I've kind of learned to step back from that and I think that the difference is I have the vocabulary I have the experience in talking about that issue with people who don't agree with me where we can reach a middle ground where we can go okay you're not 100% on my level in terms of how radical we should be with change but you do understand a need for it you know we might reach that point but I don't think I have the same capacity when it comes to talking to people especially men who come to me and don't really understand why it's even an issue because you're not just saying we need to talk about this so we can talk about change and policy and advocacy we're talking about something where they will never experience what it is you're talking about and you're trying to convince them that it's real before you can convince them why you're passionate about changing it and so I think you know there's so many parallels to different causes transphobia for example which I've been learning a lot more about as a cisgendered person I think that it's my responsibility to but at the same time you know it's about learning how to converse about this stuff with people who don't really care and will probably never experience it themselves and I don't think I have the answers and I don't have a way to talk to them and I think you know that's why it's so interesting to talk about this because it's like understand where that bitterness comes from and I kind of go I wish that I was at a place where I could get to that point where I could be frustrated and feel like I'm just gonna work through it and I'm gonna change people's minds rather than going okay I can't win this and then feeling defeated about it. 
Yeah, I think too, the wonderful thing is that data can really help those conversations and having open, accessible data that is representative of women's experiences allows for this foundation where hopefully we will experience a future where women are believed. Well, there's no data that it happened. There's no data to prove it. So a lot of people dismiss this as an issue. So it's so exciting when you hear about platforms like She's a Crowd because it's like, here's the evidence. Here's the proof. We can start the discussion now. In my moments of intense bitterness, I need to have a mantra to remember that I've committed to (laughs) optimism about a better future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've said it now. (laughs) I'll play it back for you next time you're really frustrated at the world. Please do, because those moments are so heavy and it's so difficult to get myself out of my head in those moments. And that's why I love having conversations like we've had with Zoe, because they're so productive and they put forward tangible evidence and practices and processes that move through things that have really been so stuck for a long time. I do have members of my family that are not as open to these ideas and definitely don't agree with me on a lot of points that we talk about on this podcast. So it's interesting how much data can sway them. You know, here's my point. Here's my emotional and well-articulated point. Okay, here's some cold, hard data that backs it up. All right, now I believe you. You know, it's so important. It's so important. She's a crowd is already operating in male-dominated space. Cities have always been designed historically by men and for men, and that's no longer working for us because women work in the city and we're not marginalised to the suburbs in our houses as much as we used to be anymore. And we're finding that we need to rethink space and gender and how that all works. And women have been left out of every revolution you know, and we have been left out of the history books. And for this technological, like, revolution or whatever we want to call it, like, we're at risk of it happening again. And you can see that with, like, everyone knows about Amazon and the tech issue that they had with the AI that they used for their employment whatever and it just happened to leave out women because they didn't really know how to measure like success outside of like male terms of success I think that's the best way to like sum it up because it's quite complex to explain like how the AI actually left women out without it actually technically discriminating it still managed to discriminate and I think that that's exactly what we're seeing is like if we don't make the real intentional effort to include women and everyone in the design of our technology we're going to have the same problems just like over and over again because like we're just going to exist more and more in technology and they're just going to be more and more biased and the technology we built are going to be built by people that have a certain worldview and that's just I mean exponentially just going to keep building upon itself in terms of operating in male spaces yeah it takes a real male champion in these organizations like public transport and police to push anything forward And a lot of the time, I hate to admit it, but it is lip service. And just to cap that off, what I found is that our first leading champion customers for She's a Crowd are women. Doesn't surprise me, though, that that's the case. And so you've shared a bit of your personal history with 
domestic violence and being in a, an abusive relationship. Do you find it really traumatic to handle the intense stories that you're handling or is it like how do you kind of protect yourself from all that <laughs> emotion? Every week I'll get a message from someone that'll be like this is my story like sometimes you know I'm just not in a place to handle it. I had an experience of like getting off stage after quite a big deal kind of speaking event for me like I was very nervous it was very long with no notes it was very televised and it was very intense and I like got off stage and then I was like you know in this like weird headspace and someone came right up to me and of course like that's how they feel like I'm talking about the power of storytelling I'm talking about this stuff and I'm saying that it multiplies and of course people come up to me Mm. afterwards and that's what I've literally been talking about so how can I expect them not to it's a very hard thing and a very intense thing and all I can say is like for every story that I get where someone says you know the way that I've seen you share your story has inspired me to share mine and to report my experience and or to take action in this way that makes me feel really good yeah because I was thinking about how like anxious I get when I hear that people like call into Mm. the place that I work and I have to listen to them try and ask for help I yeah I was just really interested about how you navigate that really traumatic space how can we use data in our pursuit of gender equality If you can't understand a problem, you can't fix it. Data is just information. Stories are data. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, like, stories are data. If you can share your story in a way that's meaningful for you, we will turn it into something that's meaningful for the people that have the power to change the story. This has been a really interesting discussion for me and it's opened a lot of ideas and considerations that I don't think I'd been aware of before. Nicola, I'd love to ask you, after this discussion, after going through this little journey, what do you think feminist data really means? Well, thanks for checking in, Rosalind. (laughs) What a sweet co-host you are. Thank you. So I think that... Feminist data, for me, means that you employ a gendered lens right from the inception of the idea. So whether it be analysing already existing data or creating a new platform to collect data, I think that you have to be upfront about your inherent biases and how you're going to overcome them in what you're trying to seek and how you're going to overcome them in the data that you collect too because I think that's what's been illuminating for me is how there's so much data out there on so many different platforms it's being analyzed by so many different people what strikes me is how little we ask is there gender bias or pre-existing in some of this day that we take as fact? And I think for me, that's what this conversation has kind of illuminated. What about you? I think for me, it's really made me consider the inherent othering nature of just having a form that doesn't include you, which sounds so basic, but it is something that's important because I think that when I read scientific studies or I read articles that mention them at least, I don't 
always consider where the data came from, you know, and it's something that you learn about in, I mean, school, you know, think about where the sources are. What are your sources as a layperson? If you read an article or, you know, some kind of discussion and someone quotes it and you look at it and you go, this is a reputable source and don't go further than that. You know, there's so many other considerations about how did they collect it and were they making assumptions about the people that were filling in this form? Are there inherent patriarchal assumptions here that I'm not considering when I'm making a generalization about something because data has told me to. I think it's really interesting. I think that, you know, it's not applicable every single moment, but it's certainly something that should be maybe even an everyday consideration just in your life. And I don't think it has been for me because I was never really aware of the issue. I really like that comparison to like primary sources, secondary sources. I think that's sometimes, especially with the fast pace of social media, I don't always take the time to interrogate what's being told to me. And you know, there's a lot of points to be made about why I shouldn't have to do that in the first place. But also if I'm going to be passionate about something and move to make changes around that cause, I think it is key to interrogate the information that comes to you and to push the boundaries of how that information is being presented, which is exactly what She's a Crowd does. It takes something that we know is a huge issue within our society and then it kind of interrogates why we don't have more data around it and it interrogates the way that we present the data that we already have, which it's just so intriguing. This conversation has made me really want to seek out further learning, which I love. Well, it makes me think about the fact that, you know, there are so many articles that I've read about how polarizing things like social media are, where you're being targeted with certain kinds of articles and certain kinds of information because of your preferences already. And it sort of becomes this snowball effect, maybe, and polarizes people. And yet, if we just came back to this, you know, who are we considering? And if we said, look, all of this information is coming from this very heteronormative, very, you know, Caucasian perspective maybe we can start I don't maybe not changing minds but at least opening a discussion about where our information is coming from I think it's really important I've also just realized that I've probably been saying data data because of you (laughs) what do I say do I say data or data you say data which is the American way and I normally say data which is the Australian way but I haven't been because I've picked it up, which is a great way to say we're good friends and we've talked a lot about this. (laughs) We are good friends. And on that note, Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Please go and check out our Instagram at Bad Behaviour Podcast. We'd love to chat to you and see you there and come back for our next episode. We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world. Indulge in some bad